Please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 45. We'll actually be reading a couple portions of scripture, so hang on to your Bibles and don't sit down yet. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Hear the words of the Lord. For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourself with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And turn over in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, please. Isaiah chapter 6. We'll read the first five verses there. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. It should be a familiar passage of Scripture to those of you who have studied Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Title of my message this morning, in case you couldn't tell from the text we just read, is The Pursuit of Holiness, The Pursuit of God. The Pursuit of Holiness, Pursuit of God. As individuals and as families, we can pursue many goals, can't we? And many ideals, some godly and noble, and frankly, some not so godly and not so noble. Selfish ambition can cause us to pursue fame and fortune or our own comforts. And sadly, the society we live in, as you well know, uh, will encourage us in these selfish endeavors, exhorting us to go for all the gusto you can. Do your own thing. Name your own pronouns, as they do today. Without regard to any moral standards, by the way, or any consequences. Even in our godly endeavors... Even in our godly endeavors, we must be careful lest we make idols out of them. For example, biblical knowledge. If pursued simply for the achievement of it, that we can go about bragging that we have a higher standard of living than others because we have so much biblical knowledge, that will not bring God's blessings or his smile upon us. We must follow the admonition of 1 Corinthians 10.31 to do all things for the glory of God. So, I propose that you, to you that all of us, all of us, in our godly pursuits, should be subordinate to one overarching concern, and that is the pursuit of holiness. And even that, even that, if not approached correctly, can lead to the error of Judaism or pharisaical, pharisaical religion. Ultimately, beloved, our pursuit of holiness must be couched in a greater pursuit, and that is the pursuit of God himself. This pursuit should affect our daily labors, our thought patterns, our worship service, and our future lives. 
So let's examine the subject together, and I emphasize the word together, because I'm not teaching this as though one who has arrived yet, but we all might pursue the goal together. <clears throat> so first question, what is holiness? Why should we pursue it? Well, Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines holiness as the state of being holy, purity, or integrity of moral character, freedom from sin, sanctity. Now that definition probably is the best applied to God, because he's the only one who's perfectly aligned with that. Imply to human beings, we might say this, holiness means purity of heart or disposition, sanctified affections, piety, moral goodness, but not perfection. Sounds thorough, doesn't it? Sounds like it's pretty well controlling everything. The scripture says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. <clears throat> Holiness was once a term that could be honestly applied to man before the fall, but we've come a long way from there, haven't we? A long way. So we have this dictionary definition. Let's inquire a little deeper. Let us briefly look at what holiness is not. First of all, it's not merely adhering to a specific list of prohibitions like we don't drink, we don't chew, we don't go with those who do. Okay, that's not holiness. This can lead, by the way, that can lead to Judaism and uh, self-righteousness. In Matthew 23, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for just that, okay, because they thought they were holier than everyone else by their things they were doing or not doing. Secondly, holiness is not necessarily a lifestyle that withdraws people from society and causes them to wear certain clothes or to use certain godly language. Asceticism comes to mind when you think of that. In other words, becoming a monk or a nun is not what holiness is all about. Okay? And lastly, it's not a mystical state of perfection, you know, where we're all kind of, mm, we're feeling good, we feel, we feel very mystical. Some cults, unfortunately, believe that they have achieved that, much to their own delusion and frustration. So what, in a simple sense, is holiness from a scriptural perspective. Well, to quote Jerry Bridges in his book on the pursuit of holiness, he says, it is to be holy is to be morally blameless. It is to be separated from sin and therefore consecrated to God. Now in ourselves, we cannot be morally blameless, but in Christ, who is holy, who is harmless, and who is undefiled, as we're told in Hebrews 7.26, we can be seen as holy before our God. In him, in Christ, we can be separated from our sin and consecrated unto God. And in reality, let's face it, in reality, we don't feel morally blameless. On a daily basis, we don't feel morally blameless. But that is why we are to pursue holiness, not assuming that because we have trusted in Christ that a holy life is now automatic or even optional. But we pursue it because God has commanded us to do so. He has charged us to do so because he is our God. Remember, holiness is not an option with God. He is who he is. He is perfectly holy. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord amongst gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? He's glorious in holiness. And by the way, Mr. Bridges points out that the word holy in its various forms appears more than 600 times in the Bible. 600 times. Trust me, God was not using that as a filler because he didn't know what else to say. The Holy Spirit inspired men to write that word at many times. And as Brian alluded to even this morning, that word is God's word. He inspired men to write it. It is his word that we revere and hold to. Most importantly, his word describes him 
And it shouldn't be descriptive of us, his children, right? If we're his children, his words should describe us as well. But ah, you say, no one can be that holy. No, no one can be as holy as God. And in the truest sense, that's a fact. That, that is a fact. Yet, that did not stop God from issuing a command to his people to be holy. Neither are we use our inability to be as holy as God for an excuse or a license for sin, saying, well, after all, we can't be as holy as God, so live as let live. Don't worry about it. Beloved, if you, in your mind, feel holiness is an option, then you do not know the God of holiness. For it is he who said in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45 that we just read, ye shall be holy, for I am holy. That was not a suggestion. That was not a mere possibility. That was a command. But some may say, well, that's, that's Old Testament stuff, right? As Brian brought out this morning, some believe that, well, that's, that's the old God of the Old Testament. That's, that's not today. Or maybe it just pertains to dietary laws. Or that was just the Jews. You know, that's just for them. Not so. For as any Bible student would know, Peter repeats that command, quotes that text in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 and 16, which we covered a few weeks ago on Wednesday night. In fact, he says in that passage, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all. In all, not some, but in all your conduct. So, since God, who called us, is holy in all his ways and attributes, Should not we who claim to be his children by faith in Christ be holy in all of our conduct and attributes? It behooves us as we love our Heavenly Father to strive to be like him, to imitate him in all our ways. In fact, when you think about it, when you have a hero or someone you really admire, whether it be a a mentor of some sort or if you're an athlete, someone who is greater and more, more athletic than you, you admire that person, you want to be like them, you want to imitate them. In all that they do, you want to grow up to be like them. If you're a child and you're growing up to be like someone. Well, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to love God, wouldn't you want to be like him? Because he commands you to be like him. You should desire to be like him. You would hope to be like him, that you might please him. Not that other people would admire you or or think you're great, but that God would be pleased with you. You'd have a greater uh, relationship with him. In fact, it should be our chiefest joy, really. When you think about it, it should be our chiefest joy to obey him and our greatest desire is to be like him. Beloved, it is a necessity. As we're told in Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Those are God's words. Pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Allow me to read you a quote on this subject from the Reverend Thomas Brooks, an English Puritan, who lived in the late 1600s. Brother Brooks wrote this, O sirs, do not deceive your own souls. Holiness is of absolute necessity. Without it, you shall never see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. It is not absolutely necessary that you should be great or rich in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that you should be holy. It is not absolutely necessary that you should enjoy health or strength or friends, or liberty, or life, but it is absolutely necessary that you should be holy. A man may see the Lord without worldly prosperity, but he shall never see the Lord except he be holy. A man may get to heaven, to happiness, without honor or worldly glory, but he can never get to heaven, to happiness, without 
holiness. Without holiness here, no heaven hereafter. And there shall be no, quote, quoting from Revelations 21, 27, and there shall be no wise enter into it anything that defileth. God will at last shut the gates of glory against every person that is without heart purity. Ah, sirs, the holiness is a flower that grows not in nature's garden. Men are not born with holiness in their hearts as they are born with tongues in their mouths. Holiness is of a divine offspring. It is a pearl of price. That is to be found in no nature but a renewed nature, in no bosom but a sanctified bosom. There is not the least beam or spark of holiness in any natural man in the world. That we are to pursue holiness. Reverend Books is not speaking here of a justification by works, by the way. But rather he is speaking about the necessity of one who claims to be, a, to be in Christ to demonstrate the new life within him. In essence, he is saying like James that faith without works is dead. Outside of Christ, holiness is a foreign plant to our polluted and blighted soul. But in him, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, holiness can be once more blossoming within us as a plant within us. If we can claim to be Christ, then we should be Christ-like, shouldn't we? If we claim to be Christians, we should be Christ-like. Saints were first called Christians in Antioch because they are followers and imitators of Christ. His fragrance and his light radiated from them. Do we radiate Christ to others? Or do we leave behind another fragrance, that of an unholy life? Should not our practice be that of a lifelong pursuit in joyful obedience to our Father's commands and our Savior's teaching? So, being holy is, like, is being like God, not winking at sin, not compromising the truth, not lowering our standards for convenience sake, but rather a constant delight, a delight in righteousness, rather than, a, oh, do I have to do that? Or can I just you know, do something different for a change? No, it's a delight in righteousness. It's a delight in pleasing God. It's a joy in living according to his will, not a drudgery. Yes, by position, we're justified. We are justified in Christ. We are counted righteous or holy in Christ. But that position should inspire us to be made more like our Savior in our practical life. And we will never per perfectly achieve that until we see him face to face. But don't despair. Let it be a joyful task to pursue holiness. Pursue it. Just like you'd pursue something else that you really delighted in, whatever it might be. So, Let's look at it. What is the pursuit of holiness? What is it pursuit? Well, first of all, it's not a self-motivated, self-sustained endeavor to be better than everybody else. Okay? That's not what holiness is all about, what the pursuit of holiness is all about. Humility is the first requirement of one who would pursue holiness. That's one of the first requirements. If we don't know just how lost we are in Adam, we will not know how far we have to go in a pursuit of holiness. It's not a quick fix to our lives. It's not a sprint to holiness, but it's a marathon. It's a marathon, a lifelong pursuit, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 through 2. Looking unto Jesus, running after him. It's a marathon. It's a long endeavor, a lifelong endeavor. What is the redemptive experience about but first a recognition that we are unholy, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as we're told in Romans 3.23, so our initial pursuit of holiness begins with a repentance of our unholiness and a trust in Christ 
as the payer of our sin debt. That's our initial steps. The next stage of our pursuit is based upon not a sin debt that we owe, but rather a love debt that we owe to God for his grace and his mercy in saving us. Proper motivation will help here. If we're motivated to pursue holiness so that we can claim the victory over our sin, so that we can say, oh, I have achieved this level of holiness, then we miss the mark. The proper motivation is that a pursuit of holiness pleases God. And by contrast, our sins grieve our Heavenly Father. So obviously we want to pursue that which pleases Him. A desire to please and obey God is a much better motivation than personal victory over sin, frankly. God's work of grace in us, that justifying work that makes us judicially holy and righteous in His sight, should lead to a continual pursuit of experiential holiness. We should be avid imitators of our Lord and Savior. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse 11 through 19. Romans 6, 11 through 19, please. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6, 11 through 19. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, note the therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Some translations might say, God forbid, although that word dios is not there. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death, of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So what does a pursuit of holiness entail? Well, per this text, it first involves, by God's grace, a reckoning. The Greek word here is logizomene, which means to take an inventory, to conclude, to reason, to reckon, to think on, to determine, to purpose, or to decide. What are we to reckon or purpose? Well, that we are dead indeed, or in fact, to sin. In other words, it no longer is controlling us. But we are alive unto God. Sin no longer reigns over us if we are in Christ, for he is now our Lord and has broken the bonds of sin that held us captive. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're servants of righteousness. Now, in Christ we are free, free from sin to be servants of righteousness, and now we are to yield, or in the word there in the Greek means to exhibit, to substantiate, to prove our members, slaves, or dedicated servants to righteousness unto holiness. Unto holiness, the text says. We must make a conscious effort to continually seek God's will and pursue holy habits 
out of a love for him. As I said earlier, if you think this is a short-term project, you do not understand the depths of your depravity in Adam, nor the heights of God's holiness in comparison. Should we despair for what seems an impossible task? No, in the flesh, it truly is an impossible task. But in Christ, and by the power of the indwelling spirit, we can make progress in holiness, beloved. We will achieve, will we, will we achieve in this life the perfect standard of God's holiness? No, but as we said earlier, our motivation is to please him, to be like him, to honor him. Thus we press on with joy, not with drudgery. Look at it as a loving adventure. You know, adventures are great. Adventures sometimes have rough spots and they have trials. But the proper goal in mind can, they can make it exciting and fulfilling. If you look at it as being, oh, I've got to be holy, that's not going to get you anywhere. But if you think, if I can be more holy, if I can be more pleasing to God, if I can have a closer communion with God, wouldn't that be wonderful? If I can know the presence of God in my life, know that peace that passes all understanding, wouldn't that be great? That's what I want to know. Not fighting against God, trying to resist certain things because that's not where we want to go. No, our delight should be to please him as much as possible, to show him how much we love him, and to do what we can to bring glory to him. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In fact, let me back up into chapter 6 and read uh, verses, verses 16 there through into verse 1 of chapter 7, which Technically, in the text, the Greek text, it should have been all part of one paragraph. But 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse uh, 16, we'll start with. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, verse 17 Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If you have a reverential fear of God, you will perfect holiness. You pursue holiness. The promises of God should motivate us to pursue holiness. The fear of the Lord should prompt us to pursue holiness. The word perfecting here in the Greek, which is epiteleo, means to fulfill further or completely, to accomplish, to finish, or to bring to an end. That should be our goal. So we should daily, via the guidance of the Holy Spirit, perfect, accomplish, desire, pursue holiness. In 1 John chapter 3, in verses 2 through 3, John exhorts us that since we are now by faith in Christ, we are children of God, we may not be quite sure what it is that we shall be when we are glorified with him, but we shall be like him. Who is the perfection of holiness, by the way? And in verse 3 of that text, he says that if we have this hope in ourselves that we will be like him one day, if we have this hope in ourselves, it should inspire us to purify ourselves just as he is pure. If we think about what we have looking forward in Christ, of the perfection that is ours in Christ, of the glory that is ours in Christ, then it should affect in our life a pursuit of purity and holiness and pleasing to him. Now again, our pursuit of holiness is not that we might brag or that we have overcome sin, but that we might be pleasing to him. 
It is not to be justified before him, for we are already justified through faith in Christ, but rather is to be motivated out of a love for him who first loved us. We are to put off the old man and its sinful habits, and by God's grace, quoting from Ephesians 4.24, put on the new man, which after God, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. God recreated us in that sense. He remade us in Christ that we might pursue true holiness. God has called us, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, with the purpose of reconciling us to himself and making us like himself in holiness, conforming us to the image of his son, the image that Adam had before he fell into sin and plunged us and us all into separation from God. That's the image he's restoring us to. Daily does he bless us, daily does he forgive us, and daily should we serve him to seek to please him by pursuing holiness. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 72 through 75. This is kind of a Bible study on holiness here. Luke chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter 1, verses 72 to 75. As soon as I get there myself. 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Why did God deliver the Jews he delivered them out of the hand of their enemies that they might serve him in righteousness all the days of their life. They failed in that, obviously. But that is our goal. This word is here in the, in the Gospel of Luke that speaks to us. That God has delivered us from the hand of our enemies, from Satan, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Zacharias is speaking there, by the way. Zacharias is speaking regarding his son with the purpose that God has for him, the calling that God has for him. He prophesies concerning his son's future ministry, but it also reminds us of the mercy of God, his covenantal relationship with Israel, and the resulting obedience demanded of his people. He says there we are to serve God in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Not most of the days, not just Sundays or whenever we feel it's appropriate, but all the days of our life. May God's grace, his covenant of grace, which he chose us in Christ, justified us, called us, and will eventually glorify us, inspire us to serve him in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. How do we do this? Well, we do it by the study of his word, by meditating upon it, by memorizing scripture, applying God's word to our lives, along with seeking communion with God in prayer, and yielding to his spirit on a daily basis. That's how we do it. But let's look beyond that now to the pursuit of holiness, to the pursuit of God. The pursuit of God. The pursuit of holiness ultimately is a pursuit of God himself when it comes down to it. And I guess we have pretty much hinted all along at that, haven't we? While it should be one of the highest goals to obey him, that should be our desire, and walk before him in holiness. Beyond that, our heart's desire should be to have fellowship with him. To have fellowship with God. You know, it's really what we lost in Adam's fall. What we lost in Adam's fall wasn't just a nice garden and an endless life. We lost in Adam's fall, and what Christ died to give us back, 
is communion with the Most High God, to have communion with Him, to be able to talk with Him, to have fellowship with Him, to have Him know us loving Him and, and us knowing that He loves us. Certainly we must pursue holiness, for as we know, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, we cannot see God without it, but we should, like Job, in Job chapter 23 and verse 3, long to find ourselves in communion with God. He said this, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Now we can sing, Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of life's treasures, Jesus, thy perfect likeness to wear. But do we really long to see him face to face? We can sing that song over and over again, and many like it. But is it just a song? Or is it a testimony of our heart and our desire? Or do we just long to kind of be like him, you know, kind of sort of like him, but we don't want to be too much like him because, after all, it would make us different from the world. It would would be hard. It would be challenging. Nothing wrong with pursuing holiness, as we have been talking about here, but if the only concept we are pursuing is holiness and not God himself, we will be both disappointed and miss out on the blessing of drawing nigh unto him. So pursuing holiness doesn't mean we do it for our own sake. We do it for the glory of God and because we want to draw closer to him. Psalm 42 and verses 1 and 2 speaks of us thirsting after God and longing to appear before him. As the deer thirsteth after the water brook, so we thirst after God. Really don't hear much of that today in Christian circles. I mean, really, sincerely, beloved, let us ask ourselves, do I long for God with the fervor and passion expressed by the psalmist and by Job in these passages of Scripture? Do I long with him with that kind of thirsting? Are we satisfied with just an acquaintance with God, maybe a strong friendship, but not a heartfelt yearning after him? A.W. Tozer, a godly pastor and author from the first half of the 20th century, wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. In it, he expresses in his chapter on following hard after God what I believe we all should long for and pursue. Let me read you a portion from this chapter. The moment the Spirit has quickened us to life in regeneration, our whole being senses a kinship to God that leaps up in joyous recognition. That is the heavenly birth without which we cannot see the kingdom of God. It is, however, not an end, but an inception. For now begins the glorious pursuit, the heart's happy exploration of the infinite riches of the Godhead. That is where we begin, I say, but where we stop, no man has yet discovered. For there is in in it the awful and mysterious depths of the triune God, neither limit nor end. Shoreless ocean, who can sound thee? Thine own eternity is round thee, majesty divine. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love, Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionists, but justified and happy experience by the children of the burning heart. St. Bernard stated this holy paradox in a musical quatrain that will be instantly understood by every worshiping soul. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. The words of Mr. Tozer are certainly powerful. 
Do our hearts burn with a desire after fellowship with God? We all look forward to our gatherings on Sunday, at least I hope you do here. Enjoy the opportunity to worship together and to fellowship, especially when most of us don't see each other on a regular basis. But how much more should we long to worship him and have fellowship with him? Do we spend time with him on a regular basis? In Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks of longing after Christ, of his pressing on to lay hold for that which Christ has laid hold of me. He was pressing on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that he might enjoy the consummate fellowship and communion with him. Is that your goal, beloved? Is that my goal? Again, fellowship here on earth is sweet and profitable if we build one another up in the faith and edify each other, but it is not to be compared with being in the presence of our Lord and our God. Allow me to read you one more portion of Mr. Tozer's book as he speaks on this subject. I do not want to leave the impression that the ordinary means of grace have no value. They most assuredly have. Private prayer should be practiced by every Christian. Long periods of Bible meditation will purify our gaze and direct it. Church attendance will enlarge our outlook and increase our love for others. Service and work and activity are all good and should be engaged in by every Christian. But at the bottom of all these things, giving meaning to them will be the inward habit of beholding God. A new set of eyes, so to speak, will develop within us, enabling us to be looking at God while our outward eyes are seeing the scenes of this passing world. Someone may fear that we are magnifying private religion all out of proportion, that the us of the New Testament is being displayed by a selfish I. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they, be, were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. The body becomes stronger as its members become healthier. The whole church of God gains when the members that compose it begin to seek a better and higher life. Psalm 57 and verse 5 says, Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Let our hearts desire be to exalt him with the joyful thought that we are ever now seated at his right hand in Christ, our representative, and we shall forever be with him in glory. So, in conclusion, let's try to bring this to a close. Although it seems there is so much more that could be said, really, about a loving pursuit of holiness and the God of holiness. But as the old saying goes, the proof of that is in the pudding, isn't it? So perhaps it is better to do the pursuing than to talk of the importance of doing it. A head knowledge of Christ will not save us, nor will a head knowledge of holiness make us holy. In review, then, we saw that holiness is not adhering to a list of prohibitions, nor was it withdrawing from society into a monastery, nor was it some mystic state of perfection. It involves purity of heart and disposition. It requires a heartfelt desire to please God by obeying him in all things, it is true that via Christ 
justifying work for us. We are declared righteous. We are declared right now. If you're in Christ, we are declared righteous and holy before God. But we're not there yet, are we, in experience? That is where the pursuit of holiness comes in. It is a realization that we are not what we ought to be, and with a loving desire to please our merciful God, we press on. We press on daily in a faithful, lifelong pursuit to be made like him. It was a labor of love. Should be a labor of love, not of drudgery, for he who loved us and gave himself for us calls us unto the, the desire to take up our cross and follow him. He did not say take up your pillow and follow him, take up your picnic basket and follow him. He said take up your cross and follow him. Holiness is not some cold, stark, starchy lifestyle, it is a beautiful concept. Five times in the Bible it refers to worshiping God in the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. The Hebrew word here for beauty is hadara, which means decoration, beauty, or honor. So holiness is a decoration of God, and so it ought to be of our lives. Again, it's not an option with God. He doesn't have an option, and holiness should not be an option with us, something we can take or leave depending on how we feel for the day. In fact, it is his desire that we partake of it. Hebrews 12.10 says that he chastens us when we go astray, not just to rebuke us for doing wrong, but that we might be partakers of his holiness. So let's subject all our hopes, our dreams, our plans, our desires to this one glorious goal, the pursuit of our God and to the holiness that he desires in us all. Psalm 97, verse 12, Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Let's pray.